0: The Old Testament is filled with amazing stories of God delivering or saving his people from certain defeat or destruction. God's people, familiar with God's word, when they would have heard certain phrases, would remember specific stories of deliverance. Um, I love how some of those things aligned today with some of our readings as well. Some of the phrases that would have drawn attention, and hopefully it'll catch your attention if you, uh, trusting you, you are a student of God's word, familiar with the stories of God's deliverance of his people in in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but a lot of it we see in the Old Testament. Some of the words, uh, for example, might be the the idea of overthrowing. Uh, This often, I mean, you know, overthrow, like you think about that, like I could think of Jesus coming into the temple uh, with those tables as he cleansed that, right? Flipping it, like it, it would be a powerful but pointless illustration if I were to like overthrow this pulpit uh, and I'd have to like pick up my stuff and it would be like, why did he do that? Which would be a good question. Uh, but kind of like with the shaking that we talked about a few weeks ago, overthrowing is not a, a gentle, calm term, Right? And a lot of times when you hear that phrase overthrowing, you would think of, or God's people in his word would think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in Genesis chapter 19, in judgment for their wickedness in the land, it says the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and here it is, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And the reason that I reference that in particular is because of how often God's word returns back to what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah with the term overthrowing uh, in Isaiah 13, in Jeremiah 20, in Lamentations 4, in Amos chapter 4, and other places. God talks about His judgment being like, either, either a lot of times greater than how He overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, leaving them utterly destroyed. Then Pharaoh and his army, what we read about or heard read to us from Exodus chapter 14, when God's people are standing on the other side of the Red Sea, watching the bodies of Pharaoh's army wash up dead on shore, Moses leads them in singing a song of praise for God's deliverance. And then Miriam, his sister, they pick up tambourines and she and the other women uh, gathered dancing to continue and sing the same refrain of that song, which was this, right? Um, sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And, and as Moses is in Exodus 15 is talking about this, he uses that same overthrow word right in the middle of that. In the greatness of your majesty, praise to God, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. And then we have this second idea of horses and riders, and that's what was I, I pointed out, uh, the song of Moses, the song of Miriam. Sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Anytime I hear that phrase together, horse and his rider, just my mind jumps back to Exodus 15. I hope it does the same for you as well. I think God's people would catch that term. And then there's another, another phrase of deliverance that we see. Uh, the idea of of people being conquered or dying by the sword of, of his or their own brother. And you picture an army, there's a, there's a brotherhood among soldiers, whether, whether they're part of the same um, family, have the same father or not. There's a brotherhood, a camaraderie, a closeness about those type of things. And that was, certainly would have been true for the Midianite army. In Judges chapter 7, uh, we read about Gideon. Remember the judge Gideon? Uh, a little bit cowardly, but a little bit bold um, can resonate with that a little bit. Uh, putting out the fleece, destroying the altar of Baal, the order of that's flipped a little bit. And then God used Gideon and sent him against a numberless army of the Midianites, described uh, both in number and in devastating effects like a swarm of locusts. It's like how many locusts are there? You can't count them right? They just come like a a cloud of destruction, taking everything and then leaving. And the army of the Midianites was like this. And if you recall, uh, I think it was like in the 30,000 range of Israelites uh, answered Gideon's call and came out to go and oppose them. And you remember what God said? Ah, 30,000, that's... That's too many. I mean, let's say the army of the Midianites is 300,000. That's huge. I'm not sure exactly what the number was. Again, it's just like, it's, you couldn't count it, it said. Uh, so 30,000 30, against 300,000, so that's not, not good odds. And God's like, yeah, that's too many. And so, you know, 20,000 of them leave. It's like, oh, wow, 10,000 to, let's again say, 300,000. It's like, that's even even worse. And God looks like, ah. okay, okay, God doesn't go, ah. uh God just said, that's too many. So it's like, you know, Gideon went, Ugh. all right, that, that's, that's a little bit better. And so they're left off. Do you remember what the number was by, by when all is said and done, all the water drinking and those who are afraid? How many people was Gideon left with? Do you remember? 300. 300. Let's just conservative estimate against 300,000. Not great at math, but 300 to 300,000 one to 1,000. Uh, that's a lot of people for one soldier to kill. But God says, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. Matter of fact, I'm I'm making the point that it's not your victory. Nobody's going to think, you know, those 300, they, they did well against that 300,000. And so Gideon goes, he hears the dream. He comes back up. They've got the, the swords, they've got the torches, they've got the, the pots, the vases, whatever those are. Um, They got a trumpet. They blow their trumpets, they crash the thing, they show the torches, they've surrounded the camp. You think like, oh, every one of those torches represents a bunch of people, but it didn't. All those torches represented one person. And God threw the camp, threw the camp into disorder to where as they're fleeing from this massive army that had them surrounded, they start killing each other. And so God defeats them by the sword of his own brother. The Lord, it says in Judges 7, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. This is repeated again in 1 Samuel 14. Um, Saul was a loser, but uh, Jonathan, his son, was really great. And Jonathan gets kind of antsy uh, about not fighting and not winning. And so he takes his armor bearer. He's like, let's just go do something about it. Maybe the Lord, maybe we'll die. Maybe we'll win. I don't know. But let's go. And so they climb up the cliff, right? The Philistines are making fun of them, like, oh, we're shaking. You know, one guy and his servant are coming up against us. I love it. Jonathan climbs up the cliff and says, hold on, give me a second. Catches his breath and then, like, kills 20 of them right off the bat. And then Saul and his army that were not doing anything and just kind of waiting to be defeated, they hear the tumult of this. And everybody stirred up Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellows. And there was very great confusion. See, God had turned the Philistine swords against each other to deliver his people. just like he had done with Gideon or for Gideon. And then this is by far the greatest of these stories. Uh, King Jehoshaphat. I don't hear about King Jehoshaphat very much. His names are really fun to say. You can try it sometime if you want, Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat of Judah was confronted by the Moabites and the Ammonites. This is, in, uh, this is later in the first Kings, I believe. I have the reference somewhere. So he's confronted with this massive army. Uh, they do not have the strength to defeat them. So Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast among the people and prayed for deliverance from the Lord. It says, all of God's people, men, women, and children, they all gathered together before the Lord to pray for deliverance. And the Holy Spirit came upon one of the Levites, his name was Jehaziel, and he said, prophesying in instance, uh, listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. (laughs) Here's their route. It's not fair, but it doesn't need to be. Uh, You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. The people then all respond in worship, and it says they're praising the Lord, and they do it loudly. They're singing praise to God for a deliverance that was yet future for them. And the next day, when they went out to battle, the Levite choir got dressed up in their fanciest choir robes, in their holy attire, and they go before the army. And my mom's led choirs for a long time, so I was thinking about that. I don't think you'd really want to advance at the head of an army, right? Maybe like hang back and cheer them on. Uh, just picture like the, the the choir guys. They're not. They don't have swords. Like they may have maybe have trumpets. They're they're singing, and it reminds me of the battle of Jericho. The choir goes before the army, and they are singing. I imagine as loudly as the people sang. The day before, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, right, marching up to this army that they can't yet see, where God had told them where they were, when the Levite, this choir, began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, all their enemies, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde and behold, there were dead bodies on the ground. None had escaped. By the time God's people arrived at the battle, everybody was dead. By the sword of his brother. It says it took them four days to gather the spoils of the battle that they didn't even need to fight. God had fought for them. So God's deliverance, phrases like overthrow, concept of horses and riders by the sword of his brother, right, should trigger things like this and other examples from God's words. Let's read Haggai chapter 2 verses 20 to 23. Uh, Sadly, the last passage of this wonderful little book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts." The Lord, as one author put it, is going to repeat all his wondrous acts in the history of his people now in an eschatological or end times or last times context on behalf of Zerubbabel. Like you take all of those stories of deliverance from the Old Testament and you mash them all together and you push it to the end of time. And this God saying, this is what I'm going to do. What exactly is God promising in these passages? What is the word of the Lord that has come to Zerubbabel and to his people and to us? God is promising, I think, two things in this text, an easy division of this. First, he's promising to exterminate the rebellious nations, to exterminate the rebellious nations, and then also to exalt the rightful king. God is promising to exterminate the rebellious nations and to exalt the rightful king. Let's take these uh, one by one. First, God promises to exterminate the rebellious nations. This is verses 20 through 22. You know, the language of this prophetic word from Haggai should sound familiar, not just uh, from all those stories and words like overthrow or horse and rider, uh, sword against his brother, but just by the very first statement that he makes. I am about to shake The heavens and the earth. It should sound familiar because we just talked about that in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he elaborates on those things. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God will display his glory and his righteousness or just judgment and his faithfulness by destroying his enemies. God's enemies are those who oppose him, who oppose his people, and who oppose his king, which reminds me of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, not really chapter, just Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, we read these words. It begins this way. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so we see the nations, kings of the earth, set together in opposition to God and to his people to his king specifically. And what is the fate of these rebellious nations? How will God respond to them? Well, it's obvious from uh, this passage, verse 22. God will respond with utter destruction, total conquering. He will overthrow them like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. He will destroy their thrones and the strength of their kingdoms and their nations. Any sign of their military might, chariots, horses, and riders, if that's too ancient uh, warfare for you, feel free to insert, what, F-16s or F-17s and tanks and aircraft carriers, nuclear weapons. You can, you can insert whatever sign of military might that you want, but it's going to be nothing when God is done with them. He will turn his enemies against each other so that they destroy themselves like he did to the Midianites and the Philistines and the Moabites. And all this will take place when God shakes the heavens and the earth. Like I said a couple weeks ago, this is a, not a small-scale shaking. This isn't just like a little, little local tremble. This is not a local temporary deliverance promised to a small group of Israelites regathered in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. This wasn't something that just affected them in a small sense. This shaking and overthrowing is the end of history. The consummation of all things, the final judgment on earth against God's enemies. Uh, Just looking forward into Revelation, kind of talking about the same things, here's some passages in Revelation that point us to the same shaking judgment, like Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then in Revelation chapter 19, it gets even more vivid, I think. John sees this. He says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you picture Jesus exalted on a white horse coming with this army behind him. And then listen to what happens. I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings The flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those, etc. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I mean, solid PG 13 rating, if not more, right? This is the effect, the result of the overthrowing of God, exterminating the rebellious nations and not just their leaders. Free and slave, young and old, rich and poor. Can you read these things and not be left with jaws dropped? in awe of the Lord of hosts, the God of angelic armies, the righteous judge of all things? And what is the promise that God has made repeatedly? He will conquer all of his enemies. His enemies, which, by the way, should also be and are our enemies. Those that would oppose God's people are those who would oppose God. God's judgment will fall on that. The Lord is the righteous judge. The Lord is the savior and avenger of his people. The Lord is the exterminator of all rebellious nations and their inhabitants. As we saw in Revelation 19, with the rider on the white horse, he's got an army, but they don't actually need to do anything (laughs) because the sword that comes out of his mouth, his powerful word is what slays all of his enemies. God's all-powerful deliverance Will come through one man, God's rightful king. God promises to exterminate the rebellious nations, and God also promises to exalt the rightful king. Verse twenty-three: On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And put some emphasis on this: On that day. Right? The day of the shaking. The day of the overthrowing. This, on that day, it's a, it's a simple phrase, but it, it has a profound meaning. It was interesting, I read this week that that phrase is found more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And almost overwhelmingly, it's all pointing to some sort of eschatological. I've said that before. Eschatological has to do with end times or last things. And not what, not what is technically happening right now. It could happen now. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Could happen now. But that which everything is leading towards, okay? So that's what eschatology or eschatological means. And this on that day phrase points to that. Isaiah uses it 45 times. Jeremiah, 10 times. Ezekiel, 13 times. Hosea, four times. Joel and Obadiah just use it once. Uh, Amos, five times. Micah, three times. Zephaniah, four times. And Zechariah is preaching at the same time as Haggai use it 22 times on that day. Do you think that God's trying to get his people to look beyond right now to something that's coming? Using that phrase so often to point them to what will take place. I think on that day lines up with that same yet once more in a little while that we found in chapter two. This, the day of the Lord as as is talked about, both in the Old and New Testaments. Again, the climactic moment in God's plan for history. And it's the climax, it's what everything's leading to, not just because God will exterminate the rebellious nations, but mainly because God will exalt the rightful king, which really aren't two things. It's one thing. Because it is God's rightful king, having been exalted, that will exterminate the rebellious nations. God will do this. Again, whose, whose day is it? Is it the day of God's people? Is it the day of the apostles? Is it the day of the church? No, it's the day of the Lord. God's day where God acts. And so I I challenge you, I remind you to never forget that God is acting in history. He is not distant. He is not removed. Things don't happen randomly. They aren't left up to chance. Life is not pointless, and history is not in the hands of men. This passage is full of God's actions. Just just quickly, you can see, I, what does the Lord of hosts say? I am about to shake. I am about to overthrow. I am about to destroy and overthrow and then the promise that he makes here to his rubble, I will take you, I will make you, I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God is acting in history to fulfill his purposes, to carry out his plan. There's never been an interruption to that. Never been an interruption to that. There's no plan B or C or D. There's no contingencies. There's God's will ordained from before the first let there be in Genesis 1. It's carried out beyond the end of Revelation into eternity. God's plan is to exalt the rightful king over all the earth, to exalt his chosen king. And that's the promise in verse 23. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And there's an interesting image that God uses here, requires a little bit of an explanation. It's that of of a signet ring. What exactly is a signet ring? A couple examples. I thought about bringing them up as props, but they're small enough that I thought it was kind of pointless. So if you need to see them, if you're that visual, just see me afterward, I'll point them out to you in my office. But I I have an embossing stamp that I use to mark my books, especially books that I loan out to other people, and I want to make sure that I get them back. Don't just write your name in it. It's certainly not in pencil. Some people are scoundrels when it comes to books. So this embossing stamp has a, makes an impression on it from the library of Peter Ambler. I think it says Soli Deo Gloria on the bottom. I want to get those back. That proves the book is mine. I wouldn't do that to your book. I'm not a scoundrel. Proves that the book is mine, has that unique logo, and has my name on It kind of bears that image that points it back to me. That's kind of one picture of of this. Uh, Another, a few years ago, uh, when I was on staff at Randolph Street, we recognized the benefit of having a notary around the office. And so I went through the process of becoming a notary, which is like reading a pamphlet, signing a paper, paying it, and then you can be a notary. Um, Not that hard. But what is a notary? Uh, Well, a notary guarantees the genuineness of a signature through the use of a special stamp. When you put it in those categories, it doesn't really sound that... (laughs) significant, but it is legally binding, by the way, until like February or January when my commission expires. uh, If you need a notary, I don't charge for that. So let me know. Some of you, I've been able to serve that way, but a notary through the stamp, love that sound effect. Notary guarantees the genuineness of someone's signature. You could sign Peter Ambler to something. Uh, Maybe I mean that. Maybe I don't mean that. Uh, you could sign your name on a will. Somebody else could write out an, uh, a will in your name or some sort of a purchase or aligning themselves for a loan. And, and you hope that nobody uses your name without your knowledge. Other than, nobody other than you would sign on your behalf. And so the notary's like, are you you? Yes, prove it, okay? This person's here and they signed it, guaranteeing the signature. And both of these are examples of, of proving genuine ownership, or proving genuine identity. In ancient times, they used this this idea of a signet ring to accomplish this. So an emperor or a governor or a king would have a special ring crafted with a certain symbol on it that he would press into hot wax on official documents and then leave the impression of that, of that symbol, uh, guaranteeing that the king really had signed and sent this document. This decree, this law, really did come from his name, from his hand. And this was a big deal, right? You don't want, anybody could have acted. You can't just like call or just drive over to the king's office, however many hundreds of miles away. Hey, did you really mean this? Right? So that royal seal or this signet ring was a really, really big deal. Anyone bearing that symbol had all the authority of the king attached to it. It's not something that someone would just leave lying around. So, so the king, the emperor, the governor, they wore that. Or they handed it to their most trusted advisor to keep that. So they wore it, sometimes uh, tied on a, on a chain or rope around their neck. Other times they wore it as a ring, as so a signet ring. And so generally you would know if somebody tried to take something off of your hand or somebody tried to pull a necklace off of your neck. And that was a sign of kingly authority. That's what the signet ring was, a sign of kingly authority. And God is saying that Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, will be made like God's own signet ring. It's a vivid picture that that divine authority, God would place divine authority on him as the leader of God's people. You're not just going to lead. You're going to lead on my behalf. God's, peop- God's king, excuse me, represented God's rule. So God promises to Zerubbabel that he would exercise God's rule among his people. He would be God's representative. You would be God's king. And as we look at how, that, how that's spoken of throughout scripture, this is pointing, you know, God's king is God's anointed one. An anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, and Messiah in Greek, language of the New Testament, you know what that is that is Christ, God's King is God's Christ. This is not a small promise. So God's signet ring on His right hand is God's anointed King, the Christ who was to come huge promise, a huge responsibility, a huge blessing. And there are two problems with this. Two problems, Zerubbabel's past and Zerubbabel's future. First problem is Zerubbabel's past. There weren't very many good kings and good is in followed God, honored God, Led, God, led God's people to worship him. There weren't very many good kings that ruled over God's people, and there were a lot of lousy ones. And some of them stick out a little bit more than others. Uh, the first king of the divided king, the northern divided kingdom, Jer- Jeroboam, right, to keep God's people from joining back together where he would lose his throne. He didn't want them to go to the southern kingdom. He didn't want them to go to Jerusalem to worship in the only place that God had said he could be worshiped. So he sets up a high place and a golden calf, where God's people would worship God by worshiping an image. Hopefully that sounds wrong. Don't worship me with an image. I know, we'll, we'll use a calf. Tried that. Didn't go well. Lots of people died, right? God wasn't happy with that, but he does this again. So Jeroboam, his high place and that idolatry referenced repeatedly. People were like Jeroboam. Kings that, were, that didn't follow God. Uh, also Ahab. A lot of stories of Ahab as, as Elijah opposed him and he opposed God's people and, and his wife Jezebel. Right? So there was the evil of Ahab. Then there was the evil of Manasseh, more wicked than anyone else who had gone before him. All these men, they're referenced repeatedly for how much they led God's people away from him into idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. And another of the absolutely terrible kings was one of the last ones. His name was Jehoiakim. He was also called Jeconiah or just shortened to Coniah. His father Jehoiakim, right? Jehoiakim with an N, Jehoiakim with an M. An M comes before N. Jehoiakim, father of Jehoiakim. Now you know. Jehoiakim's father Jehoiakim was king when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, and was the first time of leading people into captivity. All of the, the most promising among God's people. Pe- men, young, young men like Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That wasn't their Hebrew names. Uh, Hazariah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. I feel like we should use their Hebrew names more than just their Babylonian names. So those young men and all the stories that followed from that was from that first captivity. Jehoiakim was also taken captive into Babylon, led away in chains, and spent the rest of his days in Babylon. And when Jehoiakim was led away by Nebuchadnezzar, his son, Jehoiakim, became king. He was only 18 years old. Never a good idea. No 18 year old should be given authority, but he did. And he only ruled for three months and 10 days. I love that it's that precise. And even in that short bit of time, he was, he was awful. I mean, he didn't learn, his, his, all the prophets had spoken against his dad, his dad's led away in chains by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then he thinks that he can oppose that. And he thinks he doesn't need God's help on his side. He thinks that more idolatry is the answer. And so in those three months and 10 days, didn't even get, I guess, till his 19th birthday, he certainly made an impression. The second Chronicles 36.9 says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah gives an even starker evaluation and God's response to King Jehoiakim. Listen to this. <clears throat> As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, same guy, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you, And the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Whoa. The curse of judgment spoken against this godless king. And do you see the problem? Zerubbabel was Caniah's grandson, one of his offspring. And so we have a tension starting to form in God's word because in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised to David, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But then in Jeremiah 22, David's descendant and his line are cursed from ever serving as God's king. And so I read about Zerubbabel, it's like, how, how can he be? How can he receive this promise? How could he ever serve as God's rightful king? I'm not the only one to ask that question because in Psalm 89, Ethan, the Ezraite, expounds on this same thing. He wonders about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises when he sees how God's anointed king has been so devastated. But then that Psalm, like it starts off really, like a really high note and then turns to this like, wow, God, what you've done to your king, I, I'm trembling. But then it ends with his trust in God's steadfast love. It's like I see, he, I see this promise, I see this curse, I look around at what's happening, and I don't know how you're gonna fulfill your promise, but then the psalmist says, but, but, I, but I trust you. I trust in your steadfast love that you will, you'll work it out. You'll fix this problem, although he doesn't know how. And if we truly feel the weight of God's judgment in passages like Jeremiah 22, I mean, God tearing off his signet ring and, and hurling it into Babylon, we would be even more amazed at Haggai's blessing of Zerubbabel. Yet he uses the exact same phrase. Not a, not a different picture, right? And the same wording, when you see a repetition of wording, it could just be a coincidence. Do you think God works in coincidences? It's like, oh, I forgot I said that through Jeremiah. Like, oh, horse and rider. That's a cool connection. Like here at Risen King, we, we find all sorts of like random providential connections, with like readings or song choices, or I don't know, a f- few times I've been like, Robbie, were you looking at the text when you chose that song that worked perfectly? And he's like, no, <laughs> I did it. We're like, wow. It's like, Isaac, did you know that when you chose that reading? No, <laughs> me neither. Like, that, that's amazing timing. Still not a coincidence, right? The Lord just, like Exodus 14, today, when we started reading Exodus back in January, worked our way through, and then I want to point out God throwing the horse and rider into the sea. So what do we read today? That passage. Like a better, better pastor, better liturgist would have worked that out. Not me. <laughs> but God, God does work purposefully. So God uses this image because of the same language that he used for cursing David's line to speak a blessing of David's line because God is overturning his curse upon the house of David, restoring the promises of the Davidic covenant in his mercy and in his faithfulness and in his steadfast love. God will once again raise up a ruler from the house of David to lead his people as he covenanted to do. That promise is restored in the person of Zerubbabel. So thankfully, Zerubbabel's past, the mercy of God, not a problem. But then there's Zerubbabel's future. And the problem with Zerubbabel in, in his future is that, to be honest, he really didn't do much. Like, this is a huge promise, and you'd expect, like, to know a lot more about Zerubbabel in the future, and it's just not there. Like he never moved from, from governor to, to king. He was never less than like middle management in the Persian empire. He kind of fades off. He doesn't kind of, he quietly passes off the scene, which doesn't seem to fit this prophecy at all. Never, never king. This part of the Roman, the Persian empire, excuse me. So, so what happens with God's promise here? And there are two options, two problems. Second problem. Two options from the second problem. Hopefully you're following along on the outline of that. Two options with regard to this prophecy of Zerubbabel. One, and some writers will say this is the case, that Haggai was wrong about Zerubbabel. Like, big, big hopes, big plans, just didn't happen. And hopefully you see that's a problem. Or... Zerubbabel was a representative figure. Zerubbabel was like a shadow or a type pointing forward to someone else. It's like whatever shaking or whatever treasures from the nations that were talked about in chapter two, that promise didn't stop there. That promise promise pointed forward. And in the same way, Zerubbabel points forward. And I hope you don't really have to wrestle much with those options you know, Haggai spoke the word of the Lord of hosts, which is perfect and true and cannot fail. So the option of like, well, Haggai tried his best. You can't get them all right. No, the prophet of God does get them all right. The prophet of God gets it wrong. You stone him because he didn't speak the word of the Lord. So option one can't be true. So, so option two, the, the prophetic foreshadowing that happens throughout the Old Testament and all of which points forward to one solution to these problems or any other problems that you might have. It's the simple truth that Jesus is God's rightful king, the one whom God will exalt, the one that everybody else is pointing forward to. So when God is giving promise to Zerubbabel, he's pointing past Zerubbabel through Zerubbabel to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 begins with Jesus' genealogy, includes David, it includes Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, it includes Zerubbabel, all leading up to his adopted father Joseph, the husband of Mary. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. They find their yes and amen in him. He is the second and greater Adam, he is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. He is the seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the prophet like Moses who would arise from God's people. He's the son of David who would rule forever. He's Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, like David and Solomon and others, they all represent, they all point forward to the Davidic king who had been promised. And that king is Jesus Christ, who is now our risen king, by the way. Jesus Christ is the greater Zerubbabel who was to come. The permanent signet ring on God's right hand, ruling with a rod of iron. One author said this, Jesus of Nazareth, we affirm, is the true fulfillment of Haggai's hope and it's, it's his only ultimate fulfillment. He is the Messiah of David's lineage, greater than Zerubbabel, greater than the great David himself. And this promise ultimately about Jesus did include Zerubbabel for Jesus would be part of his family line. Right? It's not like God's talking to Zerubbabel and then just pushing him to the side to do something completely different. Right? He's speaking to Zerubbabel and through Zerubbabel. Do you see the difference in that? Like, I'm going to do this, Zerubbabel, but really, I'm going to do something completely different. So that's not what God is saying. right? It's through Zerubbabel that Jesus would come. And so it's through Zerubbabel that this promise is fulfilled. And in Zerubbabel, God had already reinstated his interest in the Davidic line. This is a great line I read. The future had already begun, right? the, the end times, the day of the Lord is already, progress is already being made to that. There's movement in that direction. A little while is a little closer. There are many different eschatology, end times, last things, many different eschatologies eschatology positions held by Christians held by Christians in this church probably held among our elderships why we don't have an official eschatology position held by Christians who all long to be faithful to God's word as you wrestle with these things a number of people is like I don't know where my eschatology position is as you longing to be faithful to God's word wrestle with these things trying to figure out when and what and who never forget the big picture and the big picture of that which is to come is found here in Haggai chapter 2. And there are two facets to it. When all things come to their climax, when the end finally does arrive, you can be absolutely certain of two things. God will exterminate the rebellious nations and God will exalt the rightful king. Philippians 2, all is said and done, every knee Things in heaven, earth, under the earth, all of it, all of creation. We sang about that today. Everything will bow before Jesus and declare that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. At the name of Jesus, the title of Lord, the title of Christ, Messiah, anointed one, when God's signet ring is held up before all things, we'll see it. God will exterminate the rebellious nations. God will exalt the rightful king. I love thinking about uh, the big picture of the one story that makes up the Bible. We talk about this in, in terms of biblical theology, the progress, the progression of God's revelation, and we see God's one plan and his one story play out throughout the Bible. And sometimes, you know, it, it starts big and it might zoom in on one person or one people and might shift in its perspective on different things and, and the story changes. But, but really all of it, again, one story, but think about the beginning and the end of that storyline. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam's sin, we see the beginning of a conflict, which is one human The seed of the woman crushing the head of one snake. Maybe a common gardening thing. Doesn't really look that big. And then you fast forward, you flip, what, a thousand some odd pages? And the time you get to Revelation, that same conflict is is painted as a king on a horse doing battle against a dragon and his army, but it's the, it's the same conflict. It's the same victory that was promised and then revealed in all versions of this story. And I don't say story as if like myth or fable. Okay. Don't hear that it is truth. This is history, but whether it's a, it's a man against a snake or a king against a dragon, the end is always clear in all versions of it that Jesus wins. Jesus conquers Satan. Jesus, the exalted rightful King exterminates the rebellious nations. So we see there are two sides to the conflict of history. You have God's people who that we, we know are those who follow Jesus. You have God's people on one side and you have God's enemies on the other side. Those who would follow the serpent or the dragon, the deceiver, the accuser, Satan. God's people with God on their side versus God's enemies. See, hear, hear this. You are on one and only one of those two sides. You are either one of God's people having trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, your enmity against God. You are one of God's people, follower of Christ, or you are one of God's enemies. There is no neutral party. There's no middle ground. And by default, you are God's enemy. You are born into the wrong side, the losing side of this universal cosmic war between God and his enemies. And you only switch sides through your response to God's king. So how do you respond to God's king? Do you bend your knee now, willingly, lovingly, receive mercy and forgiveness? Or are you going to wait? Try and see how the thing plays out. Or oppose him and hope for the best. If you're opposing him and hoping for the best, it's not going to happen. You will join all the nations of the earth being overthrown and shaken and destroyed. You will be (laughs) crushed in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And it doesn't just end in that battle because it's an eternal second death. Are 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 you aware God's word is clear that all who would oppose God, all of his enemies will suffer under his righteous judgment forever. Hell and the lake of fire, the second death, suffering that does not end. Not, not away from God, but away from God's favor. Pictures of darkness and suffering and burning and torture and torment. We're reading about that. We talked about it in student service just like last week or, or the week before, I think two weeks ago, about the reality of that. I remember R.C. Sproul writing, you know, some people are like, oh, that's all, those are all pictures. Burning and darkness, how can you have fire without light? These are all just images. And so that's not really what the reality is. And Sproul made a great point about this. You know, anytime that you have imagery in the Bible, it never points to less than what it is. It points to more than what it is. Right? Are the streets gold? Are the gates one big pearl? Right? Is it a city that's a cube? Are there rainbows shooting out of the side of the throne? Like, I don't know. Because How many times does John say, you know, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. Like, I'm not really sure what I'm looking at. I don't know how to describe it. It's so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. But the reality is greater than anything that we can describe. The reality of the blessedness of God and the place that he's preparing for his people and the curse on his enemies is worse than any human language could ever describe. Unbearably, eternally worse. See, that's the fate. You have two sides. You have two destinations. And it's all based on your response to who Jesus is. Winning side, losing side. The side of Christ, the side of against Christ? Whose side are you on? Where's your hope? What's your response to Jesus? Whose side are you on? Thank you, God our Father and mighty Lord of hosts for your word to your people through the prophet Haggai. I pray that the truth contained in it, things like the necessity of us pursuing your priorities rather than our own, what true repentance looks like, a reminder of the gospel truth that you are with us and for us through Christ, your promises that that motivate us to work for your glory, The, the reminder that Jesus Christ purifies us to come before you. And then today, the guarantee of Jesus's victory over all of your enemies, I pray that these truths would sink deeply into our souls to sanctify us. And as you promised through the prophet Isaiah, may your word that has gone forth from your mouth and come down on us like rain or snow falls from heaven, may that word that has come to us not return to you empty, but rather accomplish that which you have purposed among us, succeeding in the thing for which you sent it. And may all of this be to the praise and glory of your name in our midst and among all nations now and forever. I pray that you would help us to long for Christ's appearance. Let your kingdom come. Amen.